This is the Capital City Podcast. So we've been going through our Ruth series, and uh, last week we, we left on a bit, of a, a bit of a cliffhanger. And so I decided I'd spare everyone from walking through the whole story, because it's just the, the recap gets longer every week. Uh, but just, just a little bit of a recap. We've been following Ruth through this story. So there's a, a family from Bethlehem that fled to Moab in order to try to make their life happen during a time of famine. Ruth married into this, this family, and then all the men in the family died, which is just a really dangerous spot to be in, to be a widow in the ancient world. And Ruth, instead of doing what you'd expect, grafting back into her Moabite, her foreign family, instead of grafting back in and taking another chance at life, she swears loyalty to Naomi, the, the, the older widow in the story. And she says, where you go, I will go, and where you are buried, I will be buried. Your God will be my God, and your people, my people. So we've been tracking with Ruth through this story, and uh, there's this strange concept in the Old Testament of a redeemer. It's kind of a lot of information, but basically, if, if somebody, if, if a woman is widowed, the idea is that somebody in, in the, the, the relative of the man who died, a relative of the man who died, ought to marry her to sort of redeem her and, and keep the lands in the family and keep the entire uh, family her- herit- inheritance there. So anyway, this is where we left off, is that uh, Ruth is just bold, and she ends up proposing to Boaz in the middle of the night at the threshing floor. So you can go back on our podcast. Thanks again, Nat, for arranging all of that. Uh, you can catch up to this whole series, so I won't re-say the whole story. But where we left off is that there's this hiccup, this, this kind of cliffhanger, and that Ruth proposes to Boaz, and we finally learn why Boaz hadn't done anything to pursue her before, is that there is a redeemer, somebody closer in line in the family, who's supposed to step into this spot and marry Ruth to make this all right. And so that's where we left off, that like, uh-oh, there's this other redeemer, and Boaz has to go figure this out, if he can marry Ruth or not. So this is where we're picking up in chapter four today. Um, I often just will read the text out loud, so feel welcome to just listen along. If you want to look at your phone or your Bible, you're welcome to as well. But I want to let you know I'm going to be reading from a different translation today, uh, the NLT. Sometimes when uh, a story is culturally quite far from our own, it, sometimes it helps to be in a little bit more of a thought-for-thought translation instead of a word-for-word translation. Anyway, just some geeky stuff for me to say. Sometimes, uh, sometimes a word-for-word isn't actually that much of a translation when the culture is so crazy different. It helps to have a little bit more of a thought translation. So I'm going to be reading from the NLT this week. So to start off cha- chapter 4, it says, Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called out to him, come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Then Boaz called ten leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. So now he's asked these elders to come together, and the idea is whatever gets talked about will have witnesses. They weren't really a literary culture. They didn't write much down. But the idea is whatever happens here, there's going to be ten other witnesses to whatever deal we make. And we can't be sure, but you kind of get the sense that Boaz's relative, the one who's nearer in line to Mary Ruth, you kind of get the sense that maybe it's best to talk to him with 10 elders around to serve as a witness for whatever's going to happen. I mean, we don't know, but you, you kind of get the sense that maybe he'd say one thing in this setting and then say something else later. So anyway, um, Boaz says to this family redeemer, by the way, this is interesting, the, the Old Testament in Hebrew, it bends over backwards to not give this guy a name. We do not know the name of this person. Um, 
and I think it's just because they don't want to humanize the other potential redeemer anymore. So Boaz says to the family redeemer, you know Naomi who came back from Moab. She is selling the land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am, in next, I am next in line to redeem it after you. Quick note. For all these weeks, I've been talking about how Naomi had no earthly possessions. And all of a sudden, you get to chapter 4, and it's like, well, she had a whole chunk of land. Well, what's the deal with that? Um, again, this is just the way the ancient world was, still parts of it today, that as a woman, these lands were in the name of her dead husband. And she had no access to these lands. She couldn't sell them, couldn't get the profit from it. She had to be married or have to, had to have a son who was in the name of that husband so that she could do something with that land. And that's why she needs this confusing redeemer thing to happen. So she doesn't just have all this land, but in, in a sense, it's also, it, it kind of belongs to her through a whole rigmarole of, of uh, cultural necessity. So Boaz does something really clever here. He's like, do you want to redeem this land? He says to the other redeemer. Uh, because if not, I'm next in line and I'd like to redeem it. What he's doing is he's exposing the redeemer's motives in front of all of these elders because he wants whatever he, wherever he brings him, he wants it to be final and for him not to be able to go back later and change his mind. So he's basically saying, hey, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of land here. And the, the other redeemer is thinking, you know, there's land, I have to buy it. But here, here you're living in a, in, a, in a place where people had kind of name squatted and spoken, on, on, spoken for their land for so long that there wasn't really much mobility in terms of buying other people's land and moving around. So if you want to acquire more land, it's very hard in the ancient world. And all of a sudden, some land comes up for sale and you want to jump on it uh, because you want to have more, frankly, more more property, more land, more profit. So he's thinking, well, I'd have to buy this land, but then I'd get to farm it, and then I'd get to you know, sell it, or it would remain in my family. It's a win-win. Uh, so he says, all right, I'll redeem it. And then Boaz pulls the turn on him. He says, of course, your purchase of land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. Which is really interesting because he almost never refers to her as a Moabite, which is, uh, there was a lot of racial tension between the Israelites and the Moabites. And here he calls her both a Moabite and a widow back to back. It's like he's, he's trying to make this as little appealing as possible to the other redeemer. So he said, you'll have to marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land and the family. And so it's like, wait, what? Like the, the rug just gets pulled out from under this guy. So before, it's like, do you want to buy this land? Yeah, it'll cost you. Did I just drop something over here? Are we good? No. Um, before, it's like you'd have to, you have to buy the land, but then you actually get all this profit, and then your whole inheritance increases. But now, it's like, hey, do you want to do this 20- or 30-year mortgage on this house, and then once you paid it all off, just give it away to somebody else's family? How does that sound? That's kind of what he has done. Um, and by the way, you'd have to marry a Moabite, and if you remember from chapter 1, the Moabites have a, a pretty rotten uh, history, and so the Israelites really, really do not like them. Um, but here's the thing is that this guy ends up backing out because of this, because he doesn't want to just tank money into this land and then have to give it away to somebody else's family line. But Boaz doesn't care about the finances of it. He actually loves Ruth, and he wants to redeem Naomi, even though it's a bad financial investment for him as well. But true love doesn't care how costly it is to redeem somebody. And that's a good thing for us, because God ended up doing the same math over us, so to speak. The true love doesn't count the cost and God has redeemed us even though it, it wasn't in his uh, best interest, so to speak. Let's see here. This, uh, 
This guy then changes his mind when Boaz pulls the rug out under him. He says, then I can't redeem it because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I cannot do it. So he's saying, just like all of us doing the math, if you were going to dump money into a 30-year mortgage just to give it away, well then what have you done? You've cleared out a lot of your savings, a lot of your profit over the years, and then you're giving it all away. So he's saying, this is going to empty my own estate, I can't do it. So you redeem the land. And then what's fascinating here, if you're ever reading in the Old Testament, or the New, and you find it a little bit confusing, uh, we see some of this happen even within their own culture. Sometimes the Bible even has to interpret itself because these stories were recorded, they were told stories before they were written down, and sometimes the culture changed even in the time it took to write some of these stories down. So it says, I think it's verse either 6 or 7, it says, Now in those days it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. So the, fam- the other family redeemer drew off his sandal and said to Boaz, you buy the land. So I love that the Bible is even having to explain its own you know, historical stories here. Like, in that day, they did something different than in this day. And that, uh, so it's like a handshake, right? The handshake has its origins in sort of promising peace to another person, right? Because you take your weapon-wielding hand and you clasp it with the other person while you're making a deal. And it's kind of this, but we don't think of that. When we meet someone, we just shake their hand. We're not like, hey, look, I'm unarmed. I promise. I'm, you know, we're not doing that. But that's, that's where its roots are, but it just came to be a, you know, a cultural thing that we do. And in the same way, they historically had the right to walk on the land that they owned. They would walk on it with their sandal. And so when they take off their sandal and give it to another, the idea is, here, I give you the right to walk that land now instead course, they're not thinking like, oh, here's the magic sandal. It was just a handshake. It's just, it just the thing that they did to seal the deal in front of all these elders. So Boaz says to the elders and to the crowd standing around, he says, you are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech and then the two sons, Kilion and Mahlon, uh, which by the way, we don't know until the very end here that Mahlon was the actual name of Ruth's husband. We don't know which of the Sons was her husband that died until the very last chapter here. Uh, And he says, and with the land, I have acquired Ruth. Now, to a modern ear, this sounds incredibly offensive. Like, imagine husbands, like, telling your wives, like, well, I acquired my wife in the year 1998 or something. It just seems terrible, right? But this was, (laughs) this was uh, how it was then. Uh, And the women didn't find it offensive. The men didn't find it offensive. It wasn't like someone's like, just... I'm just holding on for, you know, women's suffrage. Just get me there. They, they, they weren't aware of it. It was the culture that they swam in. And still today in herding cultures, this is the way it is. Uh, so he says, And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Mahlon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. A lot of people miss this, and we're going to pick this up later. But notice he even says to the elders... This way Ruth can have a son, not for Boaz's sake, but to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. And then he says, you are all witnesses today. And I love this. The elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, we are witnesses. But if you read it in Hebrew, it's really funny because he says, you are witnesses. And then they just shout back one word, witnesses. And I, I always get this idea of like a Lord of the Rings battle or something like, you are witnesses. And it's like, witnesses. Like, that's all they say. Um, and every, every time you see this phrase, we are witnesses, that's all that's happening in the Hebrew. 
So anyway, we have, as the audience have, have fallen in love with this story, and we really want it to be Boaz who gets to marry Ruth because she's, you know, she's amazing. Um, they've, they, even, even Abraham is like left in the dust by Ruth's example of faith. She's really a hero. So we want it to be Boaz who, who gets the chance and just not some guy who wants to increase his land holdings, right? And here is where the, the clouds finally begin to part because Boaz, through somewhat slyly, you know, kind of, he told all the truth, but he, he slyly released the information at just the right moment, uh, he has managed to show this guy's motives that he can never go back on this decision. He can't, you know, he'd have a lot of egg on his face to try to change his mind when all the elders have seen kind of, kind of what, what page he was on in this whole transaction. So uh, the elders blessed the marriage, and they prayed, somewhat knowingly, I think, that he would have great descendants with her, which they ended up having. Of course, at this point in the story, if you were hearing it for the first time, you, you wouldn't know that. So if this were a play, I think at this part, the wedding bells would start sounding. And what's strange is we've been waiting for this moment in the book of Ruth for a long time, and then the next parts come very quickly. It says, Boaz marries Ruth, uh, they conceive a child, and it's a boy. And so uh, what Boaz is doing here is, um, this is really encouraging, it's just this, it's like a huge mercy ministry. He, is spe- he essentially is spending all of his own money to buy up the land of this widow, only to give, give it away to whatever sons Ruth would have, and then that son will be in a different family line. So Boaz won't get any of the sort of economic gain from this. It actually reminds me of a, a contractor I used to know who was building a house. Um, he you know, built a lot of houses in like the housing boom in the su- suburbs of Chicago. And he was building a ton of houses, and houses are crazy expensive there, so they were all selling for between three hundred and five hundred thousand. and 500000 and one of the women in their church, uh, her, her husband died. So now she was a widow, she had kids, and he took one of the houses that he built in this development and he just gave it to her. I mean, he could have sold this thing for 300, 400,000 and he just gave it to her. And it kind of reminds me of what Boaz is doing here financially to make sure that he can be the one who gets to marry Ruth and redeem Naomi. What's fascinating about Ruth 4, what I think almost everyone misses, partly because of the translation, but partly because we're so cued to see the love story in it. Uh, What we miss is what happens next. So a lot of us think, you know, yay, Ruth is redeemed, right? We're waiting for the romantic comedy, right? We want want that wedding moment. Uh, And it's true that, in a sense, Ruth is redeemed. At least she's married. Uh, But it's Naomi, actually, who's getting redeemed in all of this. We often like to think of the, the two lovebirds, right? But it's Naomi, the older widow, who ends up being redeemed. And you have to ask yourself, well, how, how exactly is Ruth getting married and redeeming Naomi? The reason, and I think that a lot of people miss this, the reason she's redeemed in this is that Ruth does not keep her child. A lot of people miss this. So she has, they conceive a son, and Ruth doesn't keep her child. Depending on your translation, you might have more of a clue of this or not. Um, the child is basically adopted to Naomi. So let's read through this. Picking up in verse 14. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family, Naomi's family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. So already the idea here is that this son is going to be taking care of Naomi in her old age and that he'd most likely be living with her in order to take care of her. But it gets more clear. It says then in verse 16, um, and we'll talk about the different translations of this, Naomi took the baby and cuddled cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. 
Then the neighbor women said, now at last Naomi has a son again. So the, the community is talking about this son as Naomi's son. And verse 16 is tricky. Some translations write that Naomi became the child's nurse, which is a poor translation because in, in, uh, in English, what we think of is sometimes in the ancient world, they would have a different woman breastfeed the child than the one who gave birth. And that was sometimes called a nurse. This is not what's happening. Naomi is, is too old anyway. Um, so a nurse is a poor translation. Some will say uh, she cared for the child as if he were her own. But the best rendering of the Hebrew and, and the way that it's translated everywhere else in the Old Testament is foster mother. When somebody has to take care of somebody else's child for an extended period of time, as if the other person is dead or gone or whatever, they use this term. It's foster mother. And so this is both uh, triumphant you know, to a, to a modern person, but it's also kind of hard to read. It also kind of hurts. Now, the, the silver lining is that they're in Bethlehem. It's a small village. Uh, if something were to happen to Naomi, Ruth and Boaz live probably within a stone's throw away, right? So it's not like they're just out of the picture. But this is Naomi's child, and one of the telltale proofs of it is toward the end. I don't have the verse in front of me. Is that Ruth and Boaz do not even name the child. It's the only instance in the entire Old Testament where the parents or the main uh, caretaker, like the, the, you know, the woman who, who pulled Moses out of the river, the, the, everywhere in the Old Testament, it's the main caretaker who names the child. And his own parents don't name him, but the right, it seems, goes to Naomi to name him. But I don't know if she's flustered or I don't know if she's just so overwhelmed with emotion because it's actually the, the women of the community. It's the, I have the verse later in here, but it's the women of the community around Naomi and I think verse 17, 18, 19, that end up giving him the name of Obed, which means servant or helper. And the idea is that this child will grow up to help and serve Naomi in her old age. So this chapter is kind of hard to read because we want the rom-com ending, right? And as much as Ruth has been through, it's like, does she give up a child too? It doesn't sound like something we could do. And, and the reason, I think, is that we, we could not. Most of us could not do this because we're not Ruth and uh, we're not heroes. You know, there's an interesting, um, there's an interesting critique, and rightly so, of, of, of Planned Parenthood for how few adoption referrals they have. It was a really interesting study as they actually show that Christian crisis pregnancy centers have just the same small percentage of adoption referrals. It's, it's incredibly unlikely that someone wants to adopt away their child. It's a very hard thing to give up your child. So we're not Ruth, and we're not heroes. And I, I find this, that God has made Ruth so heroic, and frankly, so after his own heart, that it's like the very marrow in the bones of God, as if he had them, uh, is like f coursing through you know, Ruth's veins, that she's sort of made out of the same stuff here. She is a woman after God's own heart, just like David was a man after his own heart. And she was willing to do what only God is willing to do, and that you can hear this language I'm picking up here. She gives her firstborn son in order to redeem Naomi, because without a man in her line, those lands disappear into Lord knows what. So she adopts her son away to Naomi. So uh, I, I, I read a, a verse before twice, because I wanted you to hear this, that this is her plan all along. Naomi was, was looking for a husband for Ruth, but Ruth said no, basically. She, she proposed to Boaz and actually went against Naomi's advice. Instead of just uncovering his feet in chapter 3 and then just kind of waiting around to see whatever Boaz would say, she goes for it and says, spread your wings over me for you are a redeemer. 
So she's not saying like, hey, make my life all great again. She's saying redeem Naomi. Ruth had no legal claim. There was no redemption to happen in the legal sense for Ruth. It was all for Naomi. So she even takes this huge risk and proposes to Boaz with the, with the point of redeeming Naomi. You know, marry me, have a child with me, and let that child be this legal redeemer for all the land that was in the, the husband's name, uh, the husband of Naomi. So we tell this story of Ruth because she's a hero. I mean, like I said, she really leaves Abraham in the dust. Everyone's always like, oh, Abraham had such faith. But it's like, man, Abraham, like, he was told to you know, uproot and go to a strange country, but he was promised innumerable descendants, fame to be the father of a nation. Still to this day, all Muslims, Jews, and Christians all claim a lineage, either biologically or in faith, back to Abraham. So all of those promises were actually fulfilled. Ruth takes a bigger risk, but she had no promises to bank on, right? She just went for it um, and had, I, I would say, an even more exemplary faith than Abraham. I, uh, I can't help but see Jesus all over this book. And I don't want to be too, I don't want to read Jesus into everything because I don't think that's the, the appropriate way always to read the Old Testament. I don't think Jesus is always the center of everything in the Old Testament, but I think he's the end of everything in the Old Testament. There's a, they, they call it Christocentric versus Christotelic, just geeky words for, is Christ at the center of every single meaning or is he the end, the fulfillment of every single story in the Old Testament? I tend to believe he's the fulfillment of it. So sometimes you catch these glimpses, these hints that are pointing forward to Christ. And both Boaz and Ruth act as types here, literary types of Christ. So Boaz makes this costly sacrifice to redeem a poor outcast, to redeem somebody that everyone says, you know, is not valuable. Uh, they make racist slurs against her. Uh, her, her people group was founded in incest, right? There's this, all this racial hatred, but Boaz makes a, a costly sacrifice to redeem her just like God has made a costly sacrifice to redeem us. True love doesn't count the cost of redemption, it just doesn't. And then Ruth, an even greater type of Christ in this book, she left her country, her people, and her language in order to care for an older widow. She took on unbelievable risk for herself just in order to care for another and redeem another. She could have stayed home, she could have tossed the dice again and just gotten another husband and, frankly, been just fine. But instead, she emptied herself. She, she left the familiar, she became an outsider, she went outside the gate of her own city in order to be like Naomi. She had to become like Naomi in order to redeem her, right? She couldn't just, like, send Western Union money from Moab, right? She had to actually become a Bethlehemite in order to care for Naomi in her old age. Jesus did the same thing for us. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a man. And I think, man, how humbling would that have to be? Like, you're in the beginning at the moment of creation. Things are all being created through you, and now you're taking on this humble frame of a man in order to become like us so that you can redeem us. He suffered as we did, yet he was a perfect example and a perfect sacrifice, a perfect high priest. The book crescendos to Ruth's final act, she gave up her son so that Naomi might be redeemed. That when Naomi was destitute, then finally she could be filled up. That the whole story she's saying, you know, God brought me out full and now I've come back empty. And now here she is full again with a baby in her, her line. When life failed her at every side, Ruth stood by her and gave her a son so that again she could have this meaning and inheritance in Israel. And with that son, I'm not saying this is fair as to how society worked then, but with that son, 
she entered back into society. Her name was recorded in the book, The Annals of Israel. She got to be one of the descendants of great kings. She became remembered and she mattered. And like a shooting star out of this text, you kind of heard me give little hints along the way, but there's this shooting star at the end of it. Imagine you've never heard the story of Ruth in your entire life and you had no idea where it was going. At the very end of the book, it says, here's that verse that I was mentioning before, that the, the women and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And then this last bit, he was, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And that's just like this explosion in the brain. Because the whole time you're reading Ruth and you're like, this is a nice story. You know, I've read about Samson and Deborah and some of these others. Now, what, what is this love story doing in the middle of the Old Testament? And you get to one of these last verses and you realize, oh, that's why people know this story and why it's remembered. Because this Moabite from this incestuous land with this bad history, this Boaz, who was the son of a prostitute, these two gave birth to someone whose grandson was King David. He grew up to be King David and redeemed all of Israel through his, through his example. It might sound like I'm ending soon here. I'm just kind of doing a bit of an early conclusion and then I have something else that's a little bit different to say. So if you feel like the tone is already wrapping down, don't get too ready to leave. <laughs> uh, David would be a redeemer for, for Israel, but 28 generations later, I just I looked to Matthew, he counted it up for us. 28 generations later, in the same tiny little podunk village where this entire plot happens. And here, here's a really interesting thing possibly even on the same property, there is another son that would be born in Bethlehem who would come to redeem the whole world. And this is Jesus of Nazareth. I say this sort of possibly on the same property. So Joseph and Mary have to be registered. You know, one of the emperors called a census. And so they're going back to their ancestral home. And it's too bad the translations get all this wrong. It says that there was no room in the inn, right? So forever we have just cemented this into like our kid plays that we do in front of the church. But that same word for in is actually the same room for upper room. It's just, tradition is strong and we don't want to change it, but it's the, the, there's no room in the upper room. It's not like a hotel. It's the ancestral family home that they're going back to. And there's tons of people in this ancestral line, and so they all probably got there first because they weren't pregnant and trying to get there on a donkey. And so everyone got it there first, and they show up to this upper room, and there's, there's just 40 people around in a tiny little Palestinian home, and so who wants to like labor and have a baby with that all going on? So they go to where the animals are, which isn't some cave out back. It's the, it's the bottom level. So you know they didn't have heaters back then, and there's not much wood around for fires. So the animals they had in a lower level of the home, not maybe the freshest smelling of homes. Probably had a Febreze subscription on Amazon Prime, you know, just always coming. No, uh, but the animals would be in the lower level to keep the heat in the home, especially in the winter and the people would live up, up top. You can, just, you can find this on Wikipedia as to what an ancient Palestinian home was like. And so they just go down to the basement in the ancestral home where the animals are, right? The manger and the trough and all that, and that's where they have this baby because the, the upper room, the, the inn, the hotel of Beth, yeah, Bethlehem has a hotel, right, uh, was full. And what's really interesting is they're going to the ancestral home, right? So this is why I'm saying all this. This was a home and the land, the property, had been in their family for ages. So we can never know this, we cannot know for sure, but Jesus was a descendant of David who was born just a few generations you know, after, after Obed, after, 
you know, Ruth and Boaz. So the likelihood that Jesus would have been born on the same plot of land that Boaz or Naomi owned is actually quite high. We can't know. That's just a historical gem for you guys. He, if he wasn't born there, he was born somewhere else in Bethlehem, and there were only about 200 people. So no matter where you are in Bethlehem, you can kind of see, you know, where everybody else lives. Uh, but he was likely even born on one of the same plots of land, which I just find is like a, I mean, some people don't like jam on this, but I just, this is the historical stuff that just gets me. Like, he could be born on the same property. Like, a son was given up from this same property before. So anyway, there's their historical bit for the 30% of you who just dig that kind of stuff. And for the other 70, I'm sorry, please come back next week. Uh, (laughs) All right. Um, So this other son, this 28 generations later, Jesus of Nazareth, He was given up as well, but not just for Naomi or just for Israel, but for the entire world, anyone who believes in him. He gave up his own son, God gave up his own son, that we might have our name recorded in the book of life, that those who know the son and who follow him might live forever with him. We were empty, but he has made us full. We were failures, but God has redeemed us. We had no name, but God gave us a name. It's easy to, when we read this to forget that the Bible characterizes us as Ruth. We are Naomi in this equation. We are the outsider, but Jesus became an outsider for us. He suffered outside the gate. The things they did to Jesus were so heinous, they couldn't even do them inside Jerusalem because it was like taboo. Like You can't have all that kind of stuff happening inside Jerusalem. He had to go outside the gate to suffer for us. We were far off, but he drew us near. We were born in incest, so to speak. My parents are here, so that's not what I mean, but you know. Uh, <laughs> we were born sort of with, we all have a disgraceful lineage if you go far enough back. If you could trace anyone's history far enough back, we all have all sorts of things. But he made us pure. We were hopeless without a future, but Jesus gives us a future and a hope and a family. He brings us to the table, and just like Boaz does with Ruth, He gives us bread and wine and invites us to share at the table of his body and blood. We were poor, we were homeless without a redeemer, but he redeemed us. God gave up his only son, just like Ruth did, so that we could be redeemed, that we could have our name written into the book of life, that we wouldn't be lost from the pages of history. And it's because God first loved us that we can love others. We're called to follow this Jesus, to be the Ruths and Boazes of the world who care for the least of these, who care for the Naomi's of the world. We're called to follow him and to spend the life he's given us, worshiping him and redeeming others. Let me pray for us, and then I'll invite Matt back up. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, redeeming us, for giving up your only son, as Ruth did, so that we could be redeemed, Lord, so that we could that the land that we abandoned, we could have a right to it once again, Lord. We thank you for her example, for her faith, and we pray that you would give us the strength to follow in that example. Uh, We just pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at capitalcitychurchstp.com or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.